everyone. I'm Natasha Ryan, VP of Communications for the North Group and podcast host. This is Time to Head North, and I am just elated to have Serena Mastin on with us today, joining us from beautiful California. Serena, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm just honored to be here, and I can't wait to share my story. Absolutely. And I do want to warn our listeners and viewers, there's going to be some potentially graphic, really hard to hear content. Um, I, as a former news person, journalist, don't shy away from that because I think it's so important to put really gnarly things out there so we know what's out there in the world to better protect ourselves and our loved ones, right? And knowledge is power. So although this is even going to be hard for me, because I know the content and what's coming, um, I just kind of want to just flag this and let you know that you might have to take a, a deep breath when we when we delve into some stuff. Um, but the, the positive side of this is I can tell you, I don't know you well, Serena, but I know enough to know this woman is proof of resilience and that you can overcome anything, any level of evil and still come out as a successful, wonderful human being. So let that be your takeaway from today's podcast and, and know that if this doesn't give you hope for survivors of, of multiple things, I don't know what would. So um, I have to acknowledge she just released her book this week, this week, right? Hold it up for me. There we go. Exposed. And and I believe the tagline, although I can't read it, is you can't heal when you hide. Is that yes. right? Did I get it? Yes. Okay. So, and you are out of hiding. You are ready to tell your story. And man, is it a story. So I want to first dive in and tell P and I just want you to give a little bit of background about who you are and what you're all about. Oh man. Um, I am a human completely imperfect, imperfect in all ways. I'm clumsy as we I all have a really bad sense of humor. Um, <laughs> and I'm also, um, an author and entrepreneur and speaker. And so I own pulse marketing, which is, uh, we're at the heart of creative and then just published my book just recently. And it's all about pouring your heart into everything you do. And so that's who I am. And I came by way of meeting Serena because, of course, the North Group is a security group. And we focus a lot of pro bono work on anti-human trafficking, um, anything we can do to protect kids. Um, you know, we've done a lot of work to pull children out of really awful situations. Um, and that's run the gamut, right? And so we're going to start if it's okay with you, with the hard stuff, um, because Serena had quite the horrific experience as a child and it has helped pave the way of who she has become and who she is sitting there now. So um, Serena, if you just want to kind of get into it, you know, um, let's start early. Yeah, I, um, so I was born, um, in 1980. So in the 80s, a lot of things were just kind of coming to the surface. Um, my biological father was the leader of a satanic cult. And through that, um, brainwashed my mother. And uh, we were in a single wide mobile home 
and he sexually abused my sister and myself um, and took my virginity before the age of five. So as a child, I was not only exposed to explicit sexual content, um, my biological father was involved in bestiality. He was, um, I mean, obviously had drugs all over the house. There was times when I saw, you know, like him putting a gun in my mom's mouth and, and basically saying to me when he had me in private, if you don't do what I want you to do, then I will kill your mother. And so as a little girl, that was my first exposure to life. And I honestly didn't know that that wasn't normal because that's what I'd seen. Um, one of my first memories, I, I had just gotten done playing outside. Um, I literally dirt stained feet, ripped jeans um, and greasy blonde hair. I run inside and I put a uh, VHS in, you know, to watch a cartoon. The VHS shifts really quickly and goes into a home video. And the home video is a woman um, sitting naked in the bathtub, slitting her wrists. And so the things that I saw at a very young age definitely changed the trajectory of my life, impacted patterns, behaviors, all of those things. But the first thing that really tore my world apart was once my mom was able to get out, uh, get us out of the the mobile home because there were tape recorders there. Everywhere we went, there was members of the cult following us. Um, what I didn't realize at the time is that one of the members of the cult actually was overseeing us at that time and helped my mom to get us out. And what I also didn't realize until later is that that night, if he wouldn't have got us out when he did, my father was planning to sacrifice us to the cult, which would mean a sexual sacrifice. Um, and at the time, sex trafficking wasn't a term, but that would have been my path if that if, if my mom didn't get us out right in time. And, and how old were you at the, the, the night she got you out? So I was uh, five years old. I was almost six. And so when we got to a safe place, I believe like the, the scenario was really like, we're safe. We felt really like, okay, the police are going to help us. <clears throat> and what happened is because my mother had put us in a dangerous situation, although she had experienced her own, you know, violence and being brainwashed, they uh, they took us away from my mom and then put us into witness protection and foster homes. And so that was on my sixth birthday. Yeah, so that was the beginning of my life. 
And did you have a chance? And I'm just going to ask questions as we go along. So at that point, was that goodbye to your mother or was she able to see you? That At that point, it was goodbye. And so um, the only time that I was able to see my mother during those years was during the court hearings. Now, I had experienced a level of trauma that actually created um, a lot of other issues that unraveled. I had blocked out a lot of the scenarios and events, so I couldn't articulate anything that had happened. I also didn't recognize that those things weren't normal. So when you are, you know, as a six-year-old being interrogated by social workers and police officers and detectives and all of these things, you, um, I had, my method of coping was dissociation. So I lived in my own reality and I, it was almost like I just kind of separated myself from all of the things that were happening because it was just too much to bear. And at that time I was also diagnosed with, you know, PTSD and dyspraxia and all of these other things, ADHD. Um, but when a child is exposed to those types of things and you don't recognize the difference, there's also a part of me, I, and I read this in the court documents and it kind of broke my heart, um, that was projecting um, like sexually like explicit behavior towards adult men. So even by being interviewed and going through those processes, I, as a six-year-old little girl, didn't understand the difference. I thought that- That was um, a form of showing- Expressing myself in that way, that was a form yeah. of getting approval. So, um, so yeah, so after the court hearings, we still were in and out of foster homes. Um, by the time I was, um, I believe I was probably between the ages of seven and nine, not quite clear the years, but um, we, my sister and I were then put with, a, with an aunt. Now this aunt was um, married to my mother's brother. So at the time she had two teenagers and was taking on my sister and I. This was also when I was able to start visitation with my mother. Okay. And so that was a big deal. But the way that my aunt handled me specifically, she could not figure out how to manage my behavior because I was so out of control that her method became cruel and unusual punishments. And so an example of that was I believe I was nine at the time. She told me to get in the shower and I decided that it was a good idea to do mouthwash commercials. <laughs> okay, so I had the shower running and I like took my shirt off and I had it like, you know, the sh when the shirt is stuck around the top of your head. Yeah. Um, and I had like my panties down to my ankles and I'm doing mouthwash commercials in the mirrors, not recognizing how long I had been in the bathroom. And she was infuriated that I hadn't gotten in the shower yet. And when she opened the door, I hid the mouthwash bottle behind my back. Now, granted, there's a full length mirror in front of me, 
but I'm, I'm nine. I'm not thinking of that. And so she, she said, what are you doing? And I lied. Nothing, nothing. And I, I guess I had drank half the bottle mouthwash. Well, my punishment for that was she dragged me with my shirt on my head and my panties around my ankles and stood me in the center of the living room in front of the bay window that faced the street. And it just happened to be a day that my teenage cousin and his friends were moving things in and out of the house. And I had to stand naked in front of the bay window with my shirt on my head and my panties around my ankles. And that's what I mean by some of the cruel and unusual. And she knew what you had been through. Oh yeah. But, I mean, was... but imagine an uncontrollable child that you cannot, nothing that you, nothing phased me. You know, they, she would spank me, didn't phase me. I, because I was so separated from reality, I kind of lived in my own fantasy world. You know, I had my own imaginary world that I, I lived in. And so I don't blame her for the choices she made. I don't condone it either because I am a mother, <laughs> but. Yeah, I have a problem with it. <laughs> but I understand that at that time, this is a, like 89 by this point, there's not resources. I was already in counseling. You know, like, so I, I could imagine she didn't even, she was losing her mind. And not that that's excusing the behavior, but I understood it now. I didn't understand it then. Sure, sure. So obviously those types of things were common. And that then led me to be even more uh, rebellious, even more um, numb to any type of like discipline. And so by the time I actually moved back in with my mom, I was 12 years old. She had to earn her rights back as a parent. She had to do all of those things. Um, and I just had become so independent and so unruly that by the time I was 15 and it was literally a few days away from my 16th birthday, I ran away. And I decided that I didn't need anyone and I was going to live on the streets. And I did. I enrolled myself into high school. Um, I got three different jobs and I would take the public transportation because they didn't have Uber or <laughs> cell phones back then. Yeah. Um, and so I would pretend like I was a normal kid, but there was nights that I slept in abandoned houses um, you know, sheds, um, a park bench. And at that time, my only thing that was keeping me awake was that I started abusing methamphetamines. And so living on the streets brings a whole slew of new issues. And, you know, there was multiple fights that I had gotten into mostly with men, fist fights. Um, at one point I had two black eyes because I had jumped in and, and was trying to fight someone who was hurting one of my friends, <laughs> you know, like I was just unruly. And then in addition to that, I 
was raped two different times by two completely different men. Uh, in my book, I only write about one because I don't, I mean, I didn't want to prolong all the torture, <laughs> you know, like it's a lot. Yeah. Um, Is anyone, when you're sitting, when you're going to high school with black eyes and you're living on the streets and there's got to be evidence of drug use at some, somewhere along the line, is anyone from the school saying we have to help this child or what's going on with this child? Did you experience that at all? No. So this was, I was really good at pretending. So okay. I, a good example is there was a park directly across from the school. That night I had no place to go. I slept on the park bench. I woke up literally with my face covered in dew just from the, the morning, you know, um, okay. moisture. I waited until I heard the school gates open and then I'd run through the back way and go into the locker room and I would actually shower and get ready as if I was a normal kid. Okay. And then I would just walk on campus and go to my first class. The only thing they did know is that I was, in, in their mind, I was emancipated. And so, you know, when it came to donations, when everyone's bringing canned goods to school, I was the kid that took the box home. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, and yeah. really, like I, I the reason I had three jobs was because I needed to raise enough money to rent a room, you know, and to to be able to stabilize myself. But I, um, just a few weeks before I graduated, was when I completely um, collapsed, just because it had probably been two weeks of, you know, a few hours of sleep just running, 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 trying to do homework, trying to go to each job. And I just, my body just gave out. And so my mom came down, she picked me up and she nurtured me back to health. <laughs> and my mom is the most compassionate, graceful, forgiving person you'll ever meet. But she also knew when there was nothing that she could do. And I was so rebellious and pushed her away so many times that this was her moment to kind of bring me back. And that was like a turning point for me when I started to, I, I quit doing drugs that day and I just started to refocus my life. And that's when I started to climb the corporate ladder. I graduated and I started moving forward from there. So when did you have, you know, it sounds like you hit that like wall, your body physically collapsed, but mentally, when did you come to the reckoning of having to face the trauma and face what you had gone through and 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 real and to, and have your real your reality come into focus when did that all happen so the challenging thing is that i was in so much counseling that i started to counsel the counselors <laughs> like it was and and remember i was really good at mirroring behavior so like I could pretend my way out of anything. And it wasn't until um, I met, I think it was probably when I was 18, when I met you know, my first love, um, that he taught me that I was pretending this whole time. He taught me to look inward. He taught me how to 
be aware, self-aware, socially aware, all of those things, which then led me into this spiral of personal development and wow. learning all these things and reading all these books and identifying like who I really was. I think that was the first, I would say he planted the seed, but those patterns and behaviors always come back. So I had to, as I matured, I had to learn what my triggers were. I had to be intense when it came to being self-aware because at any moment I would pretend that I was strong. I'd pretend that um, I was fearless. I would pretend whatever. In reality, I had to let down that guard and start to find the courage to really just be in that moment. And it was okay to not be okay. And I would say the blindfold really didn't come off until um, three years ago. And that's an unfortunate thing because I've had so many opportunities to take that blindfold off, but I just kept hiding. And there's so many people that hide who they are because they're worried about the perception of others or the judgment. And I just wanted to prove everyone wrong that I was not gonna fail that I was gonna climb this corporate ladder and I was gonna prove all the statistics wrong and all the people who didn't believe in me would look at me and be like, yes, there she is. But the truth is, is that people perceive victory as you're standing on this mountain and you're strong and you're mighty. But the, the reality is, is that you're climbing that mountain, those rocks are falling down on your face you're scraped and bloody and bruised and you're still climbing. And that's actually the part that most people overlook. That's the part where you're growing, you're uncomfortable, you're pushing yourself. And that's what I didn't recognize. I thought that I always had to look like I was on the top of the mountain. But you can't relate to people when you're standing tall on this you know, high horse no one can relate to you. They don't see you. So I had to be, have the courage to just say, I, I am struggling. I am sitting here getting emotional because I just, I see this person like that is a child inside that has never, ever been able to take a breath and let down until she is well into adulthood. And I just cannot imagine how exhausting. Yes. Those, those like three and a half decades were for you. I mean, just exhausting is the only word I can think of. Like put aside the pain and the trauma, like just as a fellow woman and a mom, like I just, I like, I hurt right now for you having to, to just feel tight all the time, like wound all the time, on all the time. Like that, that must have just, I mean, and when you took the blindfold off, did you just kind of mentally collapse or, or did you like, what did that feel like? During all of this time, I struggled with an eating disorder. 
I struggled with depression, anxiety, like, so even when you took that blindfold off, you had clarity, but you didn't have a lack of issues that you still had to work through. Right. So I think the clarity helped me recognize, but the healing process is not something that immediately comes to an end. It's not something, and I believed for a very long time that I could just keep checking the boxes and then I would check all the boxes of healing and I would win. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. It Healing is ever evolving. And so I wish that I could say I took off that blindfold and it was like mentally I just collapsed or mentally I, you know, grew. It was more of it just gave me an entirely clear perspective of the patterns and behaviors and the life and the path that I chose. It did not change what I struggled with. It only changed my perspective. Do you feel like you can breathe now? I have never been able to breathe more than I do right now. (laughs) To be a thousand times like more honest than anything. I still struggle every day. I'm trying to run a business. I'm a single mom, amazing children, 21 and 16. But I have to say that my daughter is fierce and and she just loves giving me that fiery passion <laughs> so i am not off the hook got that from <laughs> no idea no idea but it's it's like i then got off the streets right got you know the the big job as a v, vp of marketing and you know for a fortune 500 company i i made it without a college degree. And I had my son at 21. I bought my first house at 23. And I was the VP of this amazing company by 29. And then (laughs) I'd had my daughter from a previous marriage. That was just me trying to jump into a picket white picket fence. Wasn't a good idea, but, um, I had my son and my daughter, and by the time I was 29, I thought I had it all together. (laughs) And then I met Kyle. And Kyle was charismatic. He was gorgeous. He was muscular. He had this like perfect smile, almost that had like a little gleam, you know, when (laughs) just amazing and always. Mm-hmm. Played the guitar, sang to me, um, taught me about myself and, and my body. I thought I was broken for a really long time, um, meaning that I couldn't enjoy sexual experiences because sure. I thought that I had to constantly earn love and earn approval through my actions. Um, and I just felt head over heels in love. And it was this whirlwind of excitement. And I had never felt this way before. Kyle and I were together for two years and we got married in Napa. 
at the time, you know, he had a son and I had a son and a daughter. So we blended our families together. The kids, uh, his son was one by this point or one and a half, two years old. My daughter was probably four or five. And then my son was um, about nine or 10. So they're all little, brought them to Napa, had a like a, a wedding with only the people that we really wanted there to make it special. And it was beautiful. It was the most beautiful day I'd ever seen. And we took the kids on a road trip, which was the worst idea ever, but they, especially at that age, they're barfing on each other and screaming. And I mean, like everything you can imagine. Yeah. All the things. All the things. And so we got home and started living our life together. And two weeks after our um, honeymoon, I'm sitting in my office and it was like a corporate office where, you know, there's like a separate executive suite from the main office. And so there wasn't a receptionist in the executive suite. And it just happened to be during the lunch hour when everyone was gone. And a woman walks in. I look up to probably tell her she's in the wrong place. And she says my name. She says, Serena. And I knew in that moment that something was really wrong. And my heart dropped into my stomach. She introduced herself and she closed the door to my office behind her. And she described my house. She described my kids. And she had said that she had been with my husband for over a year. And she sent me 300 videos, text messages, and photos between her and my husband. It was, it was literally like I went from being on top of the world. Finally in a safe, <laughs> safe space. So you thought was so I thought, someone you could be safe with. Someone that I could feel safe with. Someone that sang, sang songs to me before I went to sleep at night. I mean, just like he painted this canvas of me, like just wild, like way over the top of what you would ever expect from anyone. And I, I couldn't even identify in that moment how to respond. I went right back to the little girl who lived in a different reality. And all I could see, and by this point, I'm, I'm 30 years old, you know, like I, <laughs> I'm a woman, like I can't like judge yeah my decisions now based on when I was a kid, but I relived that moment of separating myself from reality. And I literally was comforting her because I just felt like this wasn't my, I, this wasn't my life. And she said, you know, that he'll deny it. So we need to go confront him together. Now I was in com compliant mode. I couldn't, you could tell me to do anything. I probably just would have walked towards and done it. Right. And so I did. I, I went to his, his work. She said, text him to come out. I did. And as soon as he walks out, it was kind of like the back alley of where he worked. He fell to his knees on the cement and started screaming. 
and she grabbed my hand. And I, I couldn't tell you right now, even in that moment, I was confused. And he, they get in this huge argument, obviously. And he said, I hate you. I can't believe you did this to me, all of these things. And I just leave a few days late. And remember, this is all unraveling two weeks after my wedding. So I didn't know how to respond. And I'm just a disaster. I went from putting him on this pedestal that was higher than you could ever see to the stark reality that he's a human and he's made these horrible choices. And I kept it to myself because I didn't want it to impact the kids. I, I was embarrassed. I was humiliated that this happened just right after this beautiful wedding that we had. And a few days later, I'm in the office and I get a call from him and um, he's belligerent. I can't understand a word he's saying other than he can't live without me and he shouldn't be here. I drive home immediately during my lunch. I find him passed out on the floor. He's not responding. I don't know what to do. I call the police. There's a half a handle of vodka that's completely gone and a bottle of pills that I can't identify. So I don't know what he took in that time. And from there, the police arrive. He gets up and runs from the police. They take him in for a 5150. And this is the first month of marriage. Of marriage. And then it just got better, unraveled, got better, unraveled all the way through like the 10 years that we were together. I started the marketing and advertising agency. And during some of the first years, he was profound in everything he did. He was the face of the company. He was you know, the VP of sales, and I just kind of stayed behind the scenes. I found out about the second woman three years after the first. Now, the first woman, I was determined to heal. I went to marriage boot camps. I did, we did counseling together. Like, I was determined to heal. The second woman, I still didn't tell anyone but I just broke. Mm -hmm. I, it, I went into a deeper depression. I started to literally, my body was filled with inflammation. I was, I couldn't like, I couldn't explain, the doctors couldn't explain, no matter where I went to see a doctor, something was wrong. I had no idea that it was just stress. Yeah tearing me apart. Um, and at one point I found out that I was pregnant and I was like, there's no way. Like at this point now I'm, you know, in my mid thirties, there's no way I'm pregnant. I have, I have two over here. I got my bonus baby. We're good. Yeah. yeah. I was four months pregnant and, um, I had a miscarriage. I don't think anyone does an accurate job of describing what that feels like. Um, you have to go through it to know. 
it feels like a you lost a part of your soul. Yeah. And so this is all happening while I'm still pretending, while I'm still running the agency, while I'm trying to be the strong one for everyone else. And I found out about the third woman. And at that point, I had to accept that I couldn't earn Kyle's love. That no matter what I did, no matter how much I bent over backwards, his love had to come freely, that there was nothing I could do to earn it. But remember, that's all I'd been taught my right. entire life. And yeah. so that was the beginning of the blindfold coming off. And then from that moment, when I left after this third woman, I, I felt like this weight had been lifted like almost like I finally can literally go outside and feel like I am weightless, right? Like all this behind me, I'm leaving, I'm making this decision for me. Yeah. So I told my kids, pack your things, we're going. Then I had to tell my staff because he worked in the business. So I bring my staff together and I'm trying to be positive and strong because that's, you know, that's how you have to be. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, this is what's happening. We're going to be okay. We're going to be even stronger in 2020 because this is October of 2019. Yeah. I was like, we're going to make it. We cheers. Like, we're going to do this. And my staff starts bantering kind of back and forth. And we have a no tolerance policy for gossip. So I said, hey, guys this is already a mess. Let's not, let's not gossip. Well, my son works for the company as well. And he had walked in at that moment and he said, mom, they're not gossiping. And I just felt like my entire world, just that, that deep rooted pit of fear in your stomach. And I said, what? He said, they're not gossiping that my husband had been with one of my employees for several months and I had no idea. The woman that I'd found about the, this other third woman was completely different. And this employee had just left because she said she felt like she was having, you know, additional stress and all these things. And I had nurtured this person. She cried on my shoulder. I'd sent her on trips. I literally, I was like, that was the closest person that could have possibly been in my life that he had been with. And it was that pivotal moment where I recognized like, okay, there's no going back. Like there's no, I can forgive him, but I can't go back. And I started moving forward. And from November through the next year, he was in a relationship, but with all these other women still circulating around. And in March of 2020 um, was when I got the call that he committed suicide. And it, it was like, 
not what you would think. I literally felt like he had given me permission to stop hiding. And that's when I decided to share my truth. There's so much to, to ask and unpack here, but I have to think at some point, you know, I know where you're at today, right? But before we get to that, I just, you know, I'm hearing this and I think, dear God, is this woman ever going to catch a break? You know, like, please, please. <laughs> you have that moment of just, is there anyone in the world I can trust? You had an employee that that you comforted. You comforted the woman that came to your office a month of your marriage. I mean, like, if nothing else, if that does not describe the most compassionate human being, because I would, I can tell you with full certainty, I would not have reacted that way. There would be no comforting the other woman. But remember, I have a, you know, I have reality problems. So yes, I, I, yes, I, I understand. So I just, and I'm not making light. I just, I think it's, no. you, know, you, you have to find some sort of comedic relief in, in a yes. moment, right? But, um, but seriously, like, I just can't imagine like you, the, the, the level of trust issues you already had, then you, you find yourself in a marriage when kids are involved, there are more trust issues. I mean, uh, where do you go you, from there? Okay. So we're at, we're at what yeah. was that? three years ago. We're three years ago. Where do you go from like still being strong, still hiding everything that happened in your childhood, hiding the infidelity throughout your marriage. Now you have a suicide and a loss, right? Because even though you probably had no respect for him at that point, there was still a sense of loss. Yes. And love you, no matter how much somebody hurts you, when you spend 10 years of your life with them, there's this, this love that you can't describe, no matter how much they hurt you. It doesn't mean that you're going to accept it anymore. It just means that there's this connection there that it makes it really hard to, to deal with when somebody passes away. But I think the the hardest part was I kind of describe it as like when you're in recovery, when you're in recovery, um, it's almost like you go through a few weeks of just sleeping because your body has to recover from all yeah. of the trauma yeah. um, and all of the chemicals you put inside of it. And in my scenario, I felt like I spent the entire first year of healing sleeping. <laughs> Like I, I was just shut down. I was just exhausted. Like I could not, I couldn't even lift myself off the ground. My staff rose up and ran the agency because I could not even find the strength to get out of bed some days. Yeah. My kids blew me away with their, they're going through grieving but they were just nurturing and caring and loving, you know, surrounded by that love. But I was so exhausted 
that every day it was it was a challenge to get out of bed. It was a yeah. challenge not to go back to bed. Yeah. And that's what depression is. It puts you in a, a tunnel. And and I look at that as that was my grieving. And I did things. I tried to get out. I tried to do yoga. I tried to do meditation. I tried to do hiking. <laughs> like I did everything. Yeah. Yeah. I because I'm a master like like overachiever. Like I gotta I gotta heal faster. But it was like my body just needed to recover. And then that's when I started writing my book. And I think that was the ultimate healing of all the books, of all the workshops, of all the counseling I've done throughout my entire life. Everything that I wrote, I wrote from a perspective of my, you were, you're in my shoes in that moment. I'm not telling the story like I just shared it with you now. Yeah. You're in the story with me. And so doing that, you relive the trauma as you're writing about it. So when I describe, you know, the the rape scene of my life when I was 16 years old and the adrenaline and how my heart was beating, my Apple Watch actually said that my my heart rate was too high. <laughs> So my heart rate started rising as I was writing about it because your body is reliving out there in the moment. It's actually releasing it. And that was the beauty in this book is that I had no idea. Number one, I'm not a writer. I had to hire a book coach to even hold me accountable to write a chapter at a time. But on top of that, I never knew how healing it would be. And I wasn't really intending to share this with the world because it is raw. There are things in there you probably don't want to read. But the beauty in that is I was able to put it behind me, literally close the chapter. And now I've made a commitment to myself that I will no longer hide. And I will do whatever it takes to put myself out there in uncomfortable situations and have the courage to speak my truth. Well, I am so happy for you that you found that release through writing and through your book. I mean, it, you just, it sounds like, you know, I, I just, again, wound tight is my way of saying like when Kyle left the world, it was probably your body had been going through fight or flight mode your entire life, yes. your entire life. And I can tell you, I haven't gone through a hundred of what Serena has gone through, but I went through a really gnarly divorce and my body was on fight or flight for two years. And after that two years, I felt so exhausted. So now I I think of the exasperation that you've had, you had 35 years of fight or flight more than that. You know what I mean? Where you are just constantly in that mode of being wound up all the time. Of course, your body was probably like, I'm Done. 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 And you know what? Like, I thought something was wrong with me because I was sleeping so much. My antidepressants were not working. <laughs> like, nothing was yeah. working. Yeah. And, and one of my doctors said, You have spent the last, you know, decade of your life, if not more, motivated by fear. Everything you did was motivated by fear. And because that fear is gone, your body has to recover. 
And I was like, okay. He's like, give yourself permission to rest. Because remember, you, when you're starting a business at the uh, two, let's just be real. I, I literally, there was times when I had $40 in my business and personal account and I just made payroll, but I did not pay myself. And so the amount of stress, not just personal stress, but business stress yeah. was so elevated at all times that my body just needed to recover because and let's I remember she has children to feed. It's oh, not yeah. just her. <laughs> let's, let's throw that on the table too. Let's yeah. make sure that wasn't forgotten. It's not lost on me. I totally understand. Oh, it is. It is a lot. And then watching your children grieve. Now that is heart wrenching. They, my daughter probably will continue to suppress it and show up in anger and passion and fire until she's ready to face it. My son, he broke down and just healed and, and allowed that process to move him forward. But he also felt responsible. Like now myself and my daughter are his responsibility and took on that extra stress. So it's, it's also heart-wrenching knowing that you can't protect your child because you have to remember like my mom lost me. And so the first thing that I'm thinking is, oh my God, am I going to lose my children? It is like, I tried to protect them from what I've been through. And now there's nothing that I can do. We're completely exposed. And it, so you feel helpless. These are all still daily things that I, I face. And, and it's heart wrenching at times. And then it's an amazing moment that's filled with joy because I have overcome it. It did not destroy me. I just feel like clapping, like this is like the end to a, you know, it's a, it's a <laughs> end to a really horrific movie. Um, I, I do, I am curious. So where does your relationship stand with your mother now? My best friend. My mom is my absolute hero. If you knew even like a tiny portion of what she had went through, how she got out of that how she fought to get us back, right? Like there's a whole story of her own. I have never admired someone more. And I, I talk to her all the time and I love her more than anything in the world. And she is just the most beautiful person. So I'm lucky. And what about your sister? Cause she lived the, she lived through oh, yeah. stuff. So how is your sister today? You know, the the interesting thing is the sister that had gone through this with me, um, she was my half sister and we were really close young, but we kind of grew apart in our separate ways. She's supportive. She loves me, but we just don't have that closeness. Um, 
and she also lives in a different state so it makes it harder to have that closeness sure, sure. but she is she's definitely always been a big sister overprotective kind of bossy <laughs> so we have a good relationship we're just we're just not that close because we're distant and because we've just taken different paths in our lives but she is healthy and thriving um but then i also did find out later that i have three more sisters <laughs> uh two of which i met last year and they're from my um uh, my biological father's side of course um but we had a, a virtual call right before Christmas where I got to meet them face to face for the first time. But I believe there's more siblings out there. And did they did they go through what you went through as a child as well? No, they all have very unique stories. Um, one of them was um, adopted and never knew anything about who her father was until she did a DNA test and then found me and the other sisters. And okay. then she wasn't really excited to hear about who her father was. <laughs> and that, of course, right? Yes. Um, another one, her mom ran away with her when she was born and never told her who her father was. Okay. Um, and the, the last one, she um, knew of her father and what he was capable of. And so her and her mom went kind of into hiding throughout that whole time. And that's why all of them kind of rose to the surface as, you know, I got older because now we're all adults and we're all searching for, you know, yeah. Yeah. where's our family history? And then they find out and I'm like, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but. <laughs> I, I think I would, I would be doing a disservice if I didn't ask uh, for everyone watching, listening, what happened to him? Did he get just, did he meet his justice? What happened to your dad? So um, he was only incarcerated for seven years. And when he got out, at that point I was 12. And I followed him on Megan's Law. He literally lived 45 minutes away from me. And I followed him, I never met him again, Like, but I followed exactly where he was on Megan's Law for years. And um, he ended up moving to Florida um, and he died of heart failure when um, I was 29. Not soon enough, but, um, you know, God works, but sometimes yeah. probably a little bit slower than some people had hoped. What did he get convicted for? Um, at the time, it was all of the, it was the molestation. It was um, possession of drugs all of those types of things. Um, and it did reference bestiality and lewd acts in his, uh, in the report. Okay. So let's, let's go this way with the conversation. Now let's talk the legal system, justice system. Um, were you at all, you know, you hear of the conviction, you're an adult now, you're a mom. This man did horrific things served seven years and was put back on the streets to do more horrific things, which I'm sure he did because I am not a believer in rehabilitation when it comes to children. I don't think if you touch a child, you should be gone forever. And I'll never apologize for making that statement. That is my conviction. Um, 
is it hard to reconcile the fact that this man was back on the streets knowing what he did to you? You know what? So I'm obviously not like your typical person. So you, you're going to probably think my answer is odd. I forgave him. So I, I know now that forgiveness is for me, mm -hmm. but back then I still had this empathy that felt like something must have happened to him to create this monster that he became. And all I did was just hope and pray that he would never hurt a soul. But I was paranoid and watched where he was all the time. But yeah, it, it broke my heart because I thought that the, the justice system was different. But at the same time, I lived in it. And it, I mean, the foster homes were, um, you know, horrific at times. So it's almost like you just don't believe in the justice system. You believe that it's just not truly what it's said to be. Yeah. And I had to let go of any resentment or anger that I had for me in order to move forward. And so as hard as it was to know he was out, it created fear in me more than anything. Like, what if he finds me? What, right. you know, like, it could be anything. But that fear in me still believed that there was no other option because the justice system is the system. And so I just had to forgive and let it go and move on or else that would have held me back. You've been through it and I, and I commend your ability to forgive and I, and your strength and your resilience. I, I commend all of that. Um, if, let's say you're president for the day, you get a magic wand to do whatever you want to the system. What, what, where would you start with like the foster system, the justice, like, where would you begin? What would you oh, change? God. Oh. <laughs> in it. I mean, you've been exposed to every facet of the system almost. So where, where would you start? That's the hard part. Cause I am so passionate about all of those things. I'm passionate yeah. about homelessness. I'm passionate about, you know, addiction. I'm passionate about children, but I would always start with children. Yes. I would find a better way. The way that it's going right now is you're lucky if this child is placed in a safe environment. But the truth is, is that you just ripped this child out of an unsafe environment and then put them in an unfamiliar, unsafe environment. And a temporary one. And the yes. child knows it's temporary, right? Yes. The time. So I, and I didn't share this part in my story, but I ran away when I was six years old from one of the foster homes. Just picture this real quickly. Little blonde haired girl, six years old, running away and I had my bag and I had my naked Barbie doll and I was determined because they would lock us in this, there was like this hallway that had an accordion door that latched and the hallway led to two different rooms. And basically we were only allowed to use the bathroom and be inside of our rooms and we were not allowed to come out of the hallway unless it was for breakfast lunch or dinner. And if we didn't eat 
or didn't like what we were eating and chose not to, we were put back into this dungeon, uh, you know, as a child is what I perceived it as. And the latch was shut. And one night they forgot to latch the accordion door. And I heard that and I waited until everyone fell asleep and I snuck out. <laughs> and what so happened? just to tell you, oh, oh, the neighbors down the street saw a little girl walking at one o'clock in the morning, panicked and called the police. And I was surrounded like as if it was like, you know, in a movie where I am police cars and sirens and, but that's an example of like, I just came out of this horrific, unsafe environment, but it was familiar, right? Right. So other really odd, unsafe environments that were not familiar, it was no different and no better. How are these foster families vetted? That, that's a great question. I think that there's a different system for every agency. I think they have certain rules they have to comply by, but without fully knowing the, the picture of the operational side, I have to say that it is, now remember this is in the eighties. So I'm hoping that some of those things have transformed. Sure, sure, sure. To, be, to be really honest, a lot of the things that I'm passionate about are because I couldn't imagine that if things didn't change, what our world is going to continue to look like because there's not many people that can say they've been through the things that i've been through and i'm still actually you're on the other side of it on the other side yeah. no they go down into addiction they repeat sure. those patterns of abuse and that's what causes the you know all of this downward spiral of what you see in our world today so my goal is to help others heal and change the world. But can that one second part is going to take me a while. So let's let's start on helping others. Heal. I'll help you, girlfriend. Just <laughs> you direct. Uh, you you got me in your corner. I'll tell you that for sure. <laughs> um, listen, Serena, I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your story. I mean, just the the brutal details of everything, the amount, and and I just want to really reiterate the the courage it takes to put your life on display, especially in today's climate with all of the critics and the judgment and the free flowing negative commentary on anyone's life 24 seven on social media. I just applaud you for having the bravery to come out, speak your truth and move forward with the blindfold off. I just, I, I don't want it to sound patronizing. I'm so proud of you, but like, I, I just have, I, I'm so, you should be just so proud of yourself. That's what I tell my kids. I, yeah. you know, of course I'm proud of you, but you need to be proud <laughs> of yourself. I have finally found my worth. It was just hidden because I was hiding, but I am thankful for this opportunity and as terrified as I am to share my story with all those critics, I had made a commitment that I will no longer hide. So I'm excited. Oh, thank you. Now tell everyone where they can find Exposed. So right now they can pre-order on my website at serenamaston.com. And I'll include that in the write-up. Yes. And then um, 
once I finish just uh, reading through this proof, this scary proof, um, I'm actually going to press the publish button and it should be on Amazon in just a few weeks. So that's right now on serenamaston.com. Congratulations on your book, your life, your healing. Uh, again, thank you. And for anyone that wants to hear more podcasts from the North Group, uh, there are episode, episodes of Time to Head North on our website, tngdefense.com. You can listen on iTunes, Podbean, or Spotify. Until the next time, thank you once again, Serena. Good for you. Thank you so much. Thank you.